This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. My partner, Carol Masser, she's off this week. So throughout this week, I was joined by Alex Steele. You'll hear her voice. Great questions, great journalism throughout this show. Well, it was week 25. Yes, 25. Half a year working from home. And this is a special edition of the magazine. It's a voter's guide to the most volatile election in decades. We'll hear about the nine types of voters that will decide this election. Josh Green has that story. And we'll take a look at how Pennsylvania turned purple. Plus, we'll bring you some of our favorite interviews from our daily radio show, heard weekdays at 2 p.m. Wall Street time, right here on Bloomberg Radio. We dive into the new book, After the Gig, how the sharing economy got hijacked and how to win it back. And we also hear from Land's End CEO. He tells us about how COVID-19 impacted his business and really the lifestyle that has emerged in this COVID world. First up, though, let's get inside the magazine and look at those nine types of voters that will decide the 2020 election. We spoke to Business Week national correspondent Josh Green, also the author of The Devil's Bargain, the definitive account of the 2016 election. He joined along with editor Joel Weber. I mean, it's hard to boil it all uh, down to one that surprises me the most because we have nine categories and each, each on its own could be kind of, you know, instrumental in, in the final event. I think the most surprising and interesting one to me, though, were refugees of Hurricane Katrina. These are Puerto Ricans, American citizens who moved to Florida, who relocated there after Hurricane Maria in 2017. They've moved in such enormous numbers. There are about 400,000 of them who have moved there most concentrated in and around Orlando, that they have quickly grown to become the second largest Hispanic voting group in Florida next to Cubans who've been there now for generations. And if you look at the way uh, most Puerto Ricans feel about President Trump and the way he's treated uh, the island of Puerto Rico, their voter sentiment runs very strongly Democratic. Uh, we, we found and interviewed several of them, and it's just a really fascinating cross-section of an important voter group, but also one, as you might imagine, that's struggling with all sorts of things beyond politics, finding a job, finding housing, navigating the COVID economy, uh, you know, moving family members from the island back and forth. I spoke to one mom who had sent her children, moved, she moved to Florida after the hurricane, sent her children back to Puerto Rico because she decided COVID was worse in Florida than Puerto Rico. So you can imagine these voters, um, both parties kind of competing for their attention and just the ability to get them to turn out and vote for a candidate in November. The other uh, group that you talk about, which in, in some ways played a large part in the election in 2016, also were the shy Trumpers. Um, they're still out there. Where are they? What are they saying? Well, it's not clear. I mean, I think of shy Trumpers as being kind of like Bigfoot. Like there's a real debate about whether or not they even exist. So so shy Trumpers first came on my radar four years ago when the Trump campaign was absolutely convinced that there was a large pool of voters out there who supported Trump, who intended to vote for him, but who wouldn't admit this to pollsters and members of the media. And of course, Trump ended up overperforming expectations. So some reason to think that might have been a factor in 2016. The debate this time around is, you know, are there still shy Trumpers who think that there's a social penalty to speaking out about their support for Trump? Uh, because most pollsters say there isn't anymore, that 
you know, if you're a Republican, you're now an out and proud Trump supporter. Um, but on the other hand, I think we know people in our own lives, and we found a few remarkable ones for this issue who said, no, we do still support Trump, but because of the family and the social circles or, you know, the culture at our workplace, that isn't something we can talk about openly. So that could be another group that, that tilts the election if there are enough of them in, in critical battleground states. An- another one, Josh, that I loved was uh, double haters. And that's a category that existed last time as well. But what's different about it in this election? So double haters was a category. I had to take credit for this one that, that, that I discovered or at least popularized in 2016 when I was doing my book uh, on the 2016 election, Devil's Bargain. Double haters was the nickname that Trump's data scientists gave to a group of voters that they were fascinated with competing to get. Double haters were people who hated both Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016, but whose voting history suggested that they were going to show up at the polls on Election Day and pull the lever for somebody. So there was this frantic competition between Hillary's campaign and, and, and Trump's campaign. Uh, in the end, Trump won almost all of those voters. So this cycle, there are still double haters. Of course, this time, there are people who dislike both Biden and Trump. The huge difference this time, though, is last time they tended to be fairly conservative folks. This time, the vast majority of them are progressives, and they tend to especially be people who supported Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, but for whatever reason just haven't quite come around to committing to Biden yet. So we found and interviewed some of these guys, some of them kind of leaning towards Biden's, others saying, absolutely, there's no way I'm going to vote for him. All right, 30 seconds. Give us uh, just a half minute on swinging seniors. Love this. Swing seniors, not necessarily what you think they might be. I'll, I'll leave that to your imagination, Jason. But swing seniors are seniors, people over 65, were one of the categories that Trump won by the most. I think he won by 13 points in 2016. Well, because of a lot of reasons, coronavirus, disillusionment with Trump, they have swung hard to Joe Biden. Uh, in a lot of recent polls I've seen, they're tied or Biden's even a little bit ahead. Yeah. If they swing from Trump to Biden in 2020, this election is going to go to Democrats. And that's national correspondent Josh Green, also author of The Devil's Bargain, keeping us up to date on who's ultimately going to decide this election, a fascinating deep dive into the electorate. He was joined by magazine editor Joel Weber, the architect of this issue. We do it every four years, every time we're electing a president. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Dr. Ken Redcross, he tells us why the virus is affecting African-Americans more than any other population. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week, bringing you today some of the highlights from our daily radio show and podcast. Carol Masser is off this week, and I was joined throughout the week by Alex Steele. Alex and I caught up with Dr. Ken Redcross. He's the founder of Red Cross Concierge. He's also the author of a book about the healthcare system. He talked to us about the virus and why COVID-19 is affecting more African-Americans than any other population. Yeah, you know, Jason, that's an important point. You're right. Most viruses in this case, they're, they're agnostic. They don't care, right? But what's happened this time is that COVID-19 has really shined a big, big light on the healthcare disparities that we have here in the United States between those who are minorities and those who are not. And so we're seeing that kind of uh, break out into different little sessions now because of the differences 
in the disparities that we're seeing. And it's been it's been pretty stark. I guess the question is why we've heard many different explanations. It, is it the jobs? Is it access to health care pre this? Is it pre-existing conditions? What are some of the reasons? You know, Alex, actually, it's, it's a little bit of everything you said. So, look, think about it this way. There's a, there's a medical side to this because the disease states that are really affecting those who get the coronavirus, such as diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and also obesity, are very common in the minority community, especially African-American community. Then on the second side of your question there, Alex, we have those socioeconomic issues such as access to health care such as income equality, such as issues with housing. That's when we get to the point where I always say that in those areas, social distancing is an absolute luxury, right? It can't happen. And so when you have all of those things come together, Alec, it's almost like a a perfect storm. So talk to us specifically about black communities, if you will, Dr. Red Cross, because sure. we have seen some of that data, uh, you know, sort of take us down a level in terms of the data and, and help us understand some of those issues that, that you were just describing and specifically in black communities. Yeah, so look, everyone, so it's, it's important to, to understand, look, as they always say, you know, united is what we should be, right? Because if you're divided, we fall. And this is even more important because even if you're not uh, African-American, these uh, these health care disparities affect all of us because whether it be on the health care system, the cost, I know this is a, a financial um, uh, financial station, and those things impact us all. But when you're talking about what's going on in the community with those disease states that are in there, which all of them are associated with vitamin D deficiency as well. So it's important to hit in on that as well because vitamin D, guys, is not a treatment for the coronavirus, but what it does hit home is the importance of the immune system. And all these disease states that Alex asked me about when she says, well, why is this? All of those are affected by the immune system. And in our community, in the African-American community, we have been hit so, so hard. In fact, if you look at some of the studies out there, it says only about 20% of African-Americans can actually telework. That just gives you a little bit of an idea of the sort of jobs that a lot of African-Americans have and how hard that is to kind of stay out of harm's way in addition to balancing your health care access as well. So let me ask, there's been conversations on how you distribute the vaccine. And obviously, yeah. you know, uh, those essential workers like, say, health care workers, nurses, doctors will get it first. But then there's been conversations around minority communities like the black community. Um, yeah. Is that a, do, do we want that? Because there's also a downside, I would think. Well, we, we do, but there's a couple of challenges. So the big challenge is, is that if you're starting to find out, a lot of the vaccine companies are having a very hard time signing up minorities. They're having a hard time signing up minorities, number one. It's back to that access issue, but it's also, Alex, because of some of the history that has been there with African Americans in the medical community, all the way back to the Tuskegee experiment right. in the 1930s to 40s. You may think, guys, gosh, that's almost, that's almost 50 years ago, but believe it or not, it still runs rampant in the African-American community to talk about, you know, I don't know if I'm going to take that vaccine. Remember Tuskegee experiment? I mean, those sort of things and skepticism are things that need to be faced head on as well. So the vaccine, when it comes, it needs to be tested in everyone. You can't test it in one group. Um, so that's why it's so important to make sure there's an education piece for a lot of the minorities to really work on the skepticism and where we're headed with this vaccine and when we'll get the vaccine. And so what is the right message then, especially to black and African-American communities around vaccines? What what are you saying to, to folks to convince them? 
Well, one of the things that, you know, I, I, you had mentioned I wrote my book earlier called Bond, and the important thing there, never would I have known it'd be something we talk about in a pandemic, but my whole, my whole passion is the patient-doctor relationship. So it's those four things that are very important, trust, respect, empathy, and communication, especially in our community when you, you have to be trusted in order for me to, to put a vaccine in you, right. right, for us to have that discussion. Then there needs to be an equal respect to say, hey, look, it doesn't really matter how much melanin you have in your skin. Your life matters. Your health also matters. And then there has to be a feeling of empathy. It's important that we understand that you, that you really understand kind of the struggles that we have each and every day that most of my friends and myself have been through um, as an African-American male. And then that communication piece is key. You need to be able to sit down with that person and kind of talk eye to eye. Um, and really communicate what you want to do and why it's so important for all of us. And Dr. Redcross, you had talked a, a little bit about vitamin D. Tell us more about that because yeah. I feel like D is one of these things where every time I go for my checkup, I get told I'm deficient, and then right. I feel like I read that everybody's deficient, and maybe we shouldn't worry about it, but maybe we should. Like, What's the latest science here? Well, I'll tell you. So it, it seems like, and you're right, the, as, as the world starts to kind of wake up to the importance of the message of vitamin D, it does seem that a lot of us are deficient. But in the African-American community, it's about 80% deficiency. Wow. In the Hispanic community, about 70 um, And people may say, well, what does that kind of matter? Like I mentioned before, those disease states, whether it be heart disease, lung disease, and also our bring in obesity, they're all associated with lower vitamin D levels, which gives us a reason to think what would happen if those vitamin D levels were optimal, guys? Where would that actually be? And the NIH even had a report that vitamin D deficiency could actually even be a plausible explanation for a higher mortality. Potentially, a lot of these studies are going on, but we see it clinically, and it's something that's easy to take and something that luckily is also inexpensive as well. Okay, so before we move on to like why it's not getting more widespread adoption, can you explain yeah. to me what is vitamin D? Sure. So vitamin D, everyone, that's, um, you know, that, that's nature's vitamin. That comes from the sun. It just shows you how amazing our, our bodies are, everyone, that we actually make really not even a vitamin. It's really a hormone. It's a pro-hormone, and that's how important it is for our bodies. But we used to think it was all about bone health, but now we're learning vitamin D does so much more, especially when it comes to immunity. In fact, when you look at the, the levels you're supposed to have for your vitamin D, I, I kind of wear an Eastern medicine hat, guys, and a Western medicine hat. So my Western medicine hat tells you it's supposed to be around 30. But when you look at the Eastern medicine and some of the newer studies, our levels should be between 40 and 60. And that's Dr. Ken Redcross. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we look at the pandemic through a different lens, retail and fashion. Our conversation with Jerome Griffith, the CEO of Land's End. Coming up, this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly. Carol Masser is off this week, so I was joined throughout the week by Alex Steele. Well, Land's End reported earnings this week, and we had a chance to catch up with the company's CEO, Jerome Griffith. He's got a long history in retail and travel and hospitality, even worked for Jay Peterman for a stint. Yep, the company made famous on Seinfeld. Well, he's looking at a very different retail environment, a very different consumer amid this pandemic. Here's what he's saying may happen coming up. I think the, the 
way our world has changed, it's been a little bit topsy-turvy from, uh, you know, as we had said earlier, in March when uh, demand really uh, shrunk to April recovery and then May, June and, and through the rest of the summer being uh, relatively strong. So we've had to go back and relook at projections for a lot of our items and, and increase uh, quantities that we were ordering because we think that the holiday season is going to be bigger than what we thought it was. Uh, I think one of the things which is a concern for us is that all of the carriers that are carrying packages today uh, to homes, they're really stretched. Yeah. So if you look at the big three of USPS and FedEx and UPS, uh, you know, every day is like Christmas for them. So we're, you know, doing a lot of work with our partners to plan for what the holiday season is going to look like, which is something that does have us, uh, you know, a little concerned. And then going into next year, one of the things that we've seen over the course of the last couple of years is our product people have, have continued to refine and, and improve what the, the, the quality and the look of the products that we're selling. And we see a lot of increased demand. I, I think you guys probably saw the uh, numbers that we're seeing with new customer acquisition, which was up about 34% last quarter. And then the, the large rebuy rates that we're having from our customers, our active customers tend to be around 60%, and new customers are around 30 which are pretty great numbers for the industry. Uh, and we see that continuing. Are you seeing, you know, sort of a real change in the way people dress? That seems to be, at least for Absolutely. a certain category, just a, a market change here. Absolutely. People are looking for comfort. They're working from their homes. Not everyone's home is actually set up to be comfortable for them. So you see people ordering comfy clothes, something that looks good on top but uh, is a little bit more casual on the bottom. Uh, you see people ordering lots of stuff for the home as well. Our home business has been extremely strong because kids have been coming home to roost with mom and dad. Right. And uh, people are getting together. So you know, people are, are retooling what their lives uh, are. Uh, our dress shirt business, and we sell a lot of dress shirts with monograms on them. That's been a little depressed for us the last several months, as has uh, some of our dress pant business. But when you look at the lion's share of our selection, it's really casual clothing. And when you get to knit tops and loungewear and pull-on pants and sleepwear, it's uh, it's really been a boom for us. So in this environment, um, I'm curious as to how you plan, because there's a bit of confusion as to if, you know, Jason's going to wear dress shirts and dress pants again in the next two years, you know, and even if things open up, if he still will, how do you plan for that? Um, we spend a lot of time looking at trends and uh, analyzing trends. We also use artificial intelligence uh, for a lot of our basics uh, in order to make smarter decisions as to how much you're going to be purchasing. And, you know, you, inevitably you run out of stuff or you have some overstocks and a few things, but I have to say that the guys have done a pretty good job making it through spring and summer, and we've re-looked at what we think uh, fall and winter is going to be. But the things that will screw you up are things that you just didn't think of or can't plan for. Like, you know, if, if and we have seen this, when uh, certain states have spikes in COVID, demand goes down. Yeah. So over the summer, when you saw the southern states, Florida, Texas, California, uh, have spikes, you saw the demand go down. But as you see the, the spikes start to recede, demand goes back up. And supply chain issues, anything that you've run into in, in a meaningful way up to this point, and, and what's the status now? We knew several months ago that we were going to have some of our fall deliveries a couple of weeks late, of which we were prepared for and have dealt with. Uh, but generally, we've divested ourselves of, of, of being reliant upon any one country or any one factory. Mm -hmm. So what we've seen is uh, pretty good deliveries and expect that into the back part of the year. 
Um, but again, you know, I can't stress enough. It's not really the supply chain coming in. It's going to be deliveries right. going out to the consumer. On the other, on the other side. That, yeah, it's going to be on the other side right now. Right. All right, Jerome, I got to bring something up. Uh, Alex Steele and I were just talking about it in our chat. Uh, you were the president of Jay Peterman, and I just think that is the coolest thing ever as a longtime Seinfeld fan. Like, did you really dine out on that at uh, cocktail parties? That must have been amazing. It was kind of amazing. I'd been living in London for several years prior to that. And uh, to be honest with you, I did not know the Seinfeld connection. And when they recruited me to come to Kentucky, it was just the coolest thing. Jake Newman was an, an awesome person, an awesome guy. Yeah. Uh, loves him a lot. But uh, unfortunately, the business model was not really set up for success. And it was a short-lived And that's Jerome Griffith, the CEO of Lands. And for our full conversation, be sure to download our Business Week Extra podcast. He talked at length about his own history in the fashion business. He's had quite a journey and looking at Lands End through a bit of a different lens as we alter our shopping habits. Well, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, speaking of fashion of a different sort, we catch up with the CEO of Swimanista. She's got an eco-conscious swimwear line. Yep, this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly. Carol Masser, she's off this week, so I was joined throughout the week by Alex Steele. And Alex and I had a chance to catch up with Andrea Bernholt. She's an entrepreneur, and she's now the CEO of Swimanista. I guarantee you, because I saw it with my own eyes and she admitted it, Alex was actually doing some shopping on Swimanista During this interview, they've got some fabulous suits. They're eco-conscious. And Andrea told us about how she got started in this business. It all came about, long story short, is I was in Mexico with my friends. And we were all complaining how our bathing suits never fit right. You know, things didn't, um, if it fit on top, it was too wide in another area and everyone's moaning about it. So they knew that I had a background in manufacturing because I had started and sold the company Rockin' Republic. And so they said, you know how to make clothes. You just make some bathing suits, you know. And I thought to myself, I, you know, I had just sold the company. I'm on holiday. I'm having a great time. The thought of going back to work wasn't as appealing <laughs> as you might think. And I had just had a baby. I thought, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. But it planted that seed, that entrepreneurial seed. So after that trip, I went home. I started Frankensteining my swimsuits and putting them together, sewing things. And then I thought, you know what? I think about this every single day. I think I have to do this. <laughs> so then, so it was, it was an organic kind of progression. So then how, so where'd you go from there? Because if I go on the beach and complain to my friends, we just like, drink more. <laughs> right? We're not like, I'm right. going to go start my swimsuit line. You're so, another margarita. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what? I think that's my biggest problem. I don't drink. So therefore, <laughs> I, I, I made bathing suits. <laughs> so, so, so you're like, all right, let me do this. Then where'd you go from there? Because the other part of it is that it's a environmentally friendly, it's an eco swimsuit. Like, what does that mean? How did you wind up doing that? Well, uh, I grew up being a very eco-conscientious person, I grew up, my mom was kind of a hippie, and I always thought we were poor because, you know, it was like saving bottles and newspapers and turning off lights to save electricity. And I'm like, what's the deal here, mom, you know? And she kind of educated my brothers and I about being environmentally conscientious. And so it's always been a part of who I am. So especially with the ocean, I've always done ocean cleanups and supported 
uh, you know, things that revolved around saving, saving the earth, even though I was involved in a very polluted business with denim at Rockland Republic, we actually made our denim in Los Angeles because the emissions and the controls were so much higher for pollutants in America than anywhere else in the world. That's why we actually decided to make everything in America. So it's who I am. So especially coming from doing something for the beach, it had to be something that was eco-friendly. And I had heard like whispers over the years about this eco-friendly fabrics where you they take uh, plastic bottles, they break them down, and then they weave the fibers into threads. And then from those threads, they make the fabric. So the technology is really racing right now, and they're coming up with amazing things. You would never know. I mean, even in the time that I started just even thinking about Swimanista to what it is now. I mean, even, you know, those, those horrible little liners in the bottom of your bathing suit when you try it on? Yep. Yep, yeah. Well, even that, I have it. It's compostable. Oh, very cool. So, like, all of my packaging is made from recycled materials. It's compostable. And, um, you know, unfortunately right now it's still, it's, it's very expensive. Yeah. But, um, you know what, I, my goal right now is to make women happy and kind of reduce my carbon footprint in the world. So uh, that's not the first and foremost thing that I'm, I'm doing this for. This is a, definitely a passion project that um, is, you know, I think if you do things the right way and do them truly organically, then people will understand it and catch on and appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah. So, Andrea, I want to take you back to, to Rockin' Republic uh, for a minute because, obviously, that really caught fire in a big way. you got a lot of people paying attention to it, some very famous people um, paying attention to it. And, I mean, that is a fiercely – I mean, we'll talk about swimsuits again in a second in the in a similar light. But, I mean, denim is fiercely competitive, and everybody's got to take – on that, what did you learn from that business uh, around fit, around marketing, around all of it that you're really applying directly here to Swimanista? Oh, that's it's a good question because um, you know, yeah, we it was and still is a very competitive market, and it's not like we invented anything new. We just built a better ba- mousetrap, right? And that's essentially what I'm doing here. You know, there were a lot of little, if you will, cheats that we did to make your body look better. We, you know, took the side seams and brought them in a little bit and made your thigh look thinner. We angled the pockets in a certain way. So there were all these, like, these little cheats on things that made our fit superior. And also, the same thing with Rock and Republic that I'm applying now is that we didn't start out using run-of-the-mill fabrics or materials. We used the best of the best. And, yeah, our profit margins weren't like the other competitors initially to start out. But because we had a quality product, because we had, you know, it was so amazing. One of those things, you don't know why you love it or why it looks so good on you. It just does. And it's because of all the things in the background. Like for us, it's, I use super expensive lining. I use recycled amazing materials that come out of Italy that all the the luxury houses use. Um, You know, I have little cheats inside of my swimwear that suck you in, push your boobs up, round out your butt. It's like all those little things, all these little tricks, if you will that I've applied to the human body. <laughs> well, let's get to that. And this is the moment where Jason gets really uncomfortable. But so I'm, I'm on your website right now and I'm scrolling through and you can shop bottoms and tops and then like, one pieces. So like if you're going on your site, how do you know how to shop for yourself? Well, if you go, there's a, um, a button there also and it says, um, you know, find my size. So if you go in 
and you punch in. It'll ask you questions. What's your jean size? What's your dress size? What's your bra size? Um, you know, Jason, put in your bra size. You'll be fine. Totally. Um, be fine. <laughs> you put in your bra size, and it calculates what is going to be the right fit in Swimanista for you. And this is something that I uh, developed during COVID when I, I, I started to panic for a minute in the midst of all this as launching a new product, you know. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to take this time. I'm going to redo my website and make it better. I'm trying to troubleshoot everything that women want and think about. How are they going to shop? What are they going to shop for? How is it going to fit? Because um, I, like, I don't like to return stuff. When I buy something online, I'm an avid online shopper, so I try to apply all of my favorite websites and all the tricks and tools that they had and apply it into my own site. Hmm. So if you go on there, it should, fit. I mean, knock on wood. Do I have wood? No, no, it worked. Offices. I just did it. It worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, no, but I mean, so far, like even when, when women put it in, I was going to say knock on wood. Um, no one has said, Oh my God, your, your calculator was all off. You know, I'm an extra small, but so it, it, we put a lot of time and effort into that so that you can find your ultimate best size. And so tell us, Andrea, more about, I want to pick up on something you, you just mentioned about sort of the, the pandemic life. Um, I mean, tell us what else you had to do or got to do amid or have gotten to do or, or can do amid all of this. It's a very unusual time, to say the least, in the world <laughs> of um, yeah. commerce and life and everything else. I mean, we're in New York, you're in California, and I mean, the world is locked down still in in many ways. I do wonder how you run a company amid all of this, especially a new company. Well, um, it's been super easy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely challenging. And trust me, I, I rode the wave of, of um, anxiety there for a minute. But then I thought, you know what? The strong survive here. And I know I have a great product. And I know that... Um, once things turn around, everyone's going to catch it. But there were two camps, basically. There was the fat camp, everyone got fat, and then there was the I'm going to work out and challenge myself camp, right? Right. Um, so um, I really focused on, on these women who were working out and wanting to get fit during this time, and I followed them on Instagram. I would reach out to them, and it was kind of created this camaraderie, and it's like, hey, you're doing so great, you know, you deserve a new swimsuit. They're like, I do. You know, it's like, Hey, it's sunny somewhere. You, you know, you deserve to show off your new body. And it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. So I was trying to empower these women and give them recognition, even online, even when nobody else could, could recognize that or see their new bikini bodies. And, um, you know, also a big part of my, uh, sales strategy was resorts. I was doing a lot of trunk shows in resorts. And, you know, a lot of that, too, was just evoking that wonderful memory when you go on holiday and you're at the Four Seasons in Maui, right? And you just discovered this swim in these, this swimsuit, and it's so great, and you're so happy every time you wear it, and you, now you go online and you bought, you know, three more colors and two more styles, and, like, I loved those women. Um, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> those are good uh, customers. Those, those are great customers. I love them. You know, and I just, I love making people feel good. It really, it really satisfies my soul and so um you know in evoking that making women feel good i couldn't do it now by you know having them be on their holidays in in hawaii or right. the bahamas anymore so uh like how else can i empower these women and make them feel good and so i think it, it really because it came from a, a true point you know a, a, a true person that was right. doing this i wasn't some you know algorithm going you look great send us your pictures or whatever <laughs> you know <laughs> Um, I really admired these women and like they would challenge their bodies and challenge themselves right. and 
So I try to key into it that way. And right. also, like I said, sh- closing down my website, redoing it, making yep. it better. Yeah. And that's Swimmingista CEO Andrea Bernholds. A really fun conversation, understanding how she came to create this company, her history as an entrepreneur, and much more. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly, alongside Alex Steele throughout the week, Carol Masser on vacation. Plenty for you in our next hour. We go inside that special voter's guide issue of the magazine. We look at how Pennsylvania is turning purple, a deep dive courtesy of Sean Donnan, who's been checking in with one town since March. Plus, the CEO of Bruin Sports Capital, our pal George Pine, he comes along to tell us how boycotts may impact the value of sports team and what is going on in the world of sports. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello and welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly. Carol Masser is off this week. I was joined throughout the week by Alex Steele. Well, ahead in this hour of Bloomberg Business Week, we're going to hear from George Pine. He's an old pal of mine. He's now the CEO of Bruin Sports Capital. He was a top executive at NASCAR. He was a top executive at IMG as well. So he knows the world of sports and he knows how unprecedented this world is. He's going to talk about those protests and sports getting back to business. Plus, a special edition of the magazine this week. It's a voter's guide to the most volatile election in decades, the 2020 presidential election and also all of those other races down ballot. We're going to hear from the CEO of Vote America about voting by mail and what we may see over the next couple months running up to that election. First up, though, let's get inside the magazine and talk about how Pennsylvania turned purple. It is one of the most contested states historically. 2020 will be no different. We caught up with reporter Sean Donnan. He spent some time looking at one specific town that defied a lot of expectations. He joined us along with editor Joel Weber. Well, it started off uh, in the spring when we started uh, getting the lockdown uh, with coronavirus, and I just really wanted to find one place in America that I wanted to track through this crisis. And uh, the place I settled on for a number of reasons, including the fact it's sitting in a pretty crucial part of of Pennsylvania politically, was was Ambridge. It has this astonishing history uh, going back to the 19th century when it was actually called Economy Pennsylvania. Uh, and it was uh, the home of a, uh, a religious sect called the Harmonists who had a whole ethos of communal living and ended up actually setting up a, a huge business empire and selling the town to the American Bridge Company in the early 20th century. Um, and the American Bridge Company renamed Ambridge after itself and brought the steel industry to town. And you had the whole ride through the 20th century of the steel industry, which ends in the in the 80s, uh, when American Bridge moves out of town, other steel mills shut down, and we have the last uh, 30 or so years, or 30 plus years, of, of a kind of that deindustrialized America experience that we all became so familiar with uh, in 2016. And then there was this one added wrinkle that, that, that uh, I just couldn't get out of my head, which is Ambridge didn't go with the flow in 2016. Mm. It's a former steel town, and it actually voted for Hillary Clinton. And so it goes against the the, the political cliche, if you will, of, of these deindustrialized towns. And so I wanted to find out why. I wanted to find out how this town was 
was getting battered by the, the health crisis and the economic crisis. And, and I wanted to try and ask a question, which was, you know, after four years of Donald Trump, do we know what the future is for these places that um, that he really made so many big economic promises to? So what was your answer that you found in this? Well, the answer you find in a lot of places is that it's complicated. Exactly. Right? And, and the answer is it's a town that is still caught between two different identities. There's a, a big chunk of people in town who really are hanging on to the industrial past. Uh, but what we've seen this year is the kind of last major industrial employers are, are shutting down, um, uh, partly as a result of, of, of the coronavirus downturn. Uh, and things aren't looking good on the industrial front. And on the other side is this idea that Ambridge, which is 25 minutes from downtown Pittsburgh, maybe can reinvent itself as a bedroom community. And there's all sorts of challenges with that. The school system isn't as good as it should be. The, the property mix is, these are old factory, it's an old factory town, a lot of old factory houses that aren't necessarily going to attract a young family uh, today. And you've got a Main Street, Merchant Street, it's called, uh, which is still just dominated by vacant buildings. In fact, it's it's cheaper today to rent a storefront on Merchant Street in Ambridge to store your excess uh, stuff uh, than it is to rent a storage unit on the outskirts of town, which is kind of a, a damning economic statistic. So it's we don't know what the future is for a place like that, but we do know that the kind of the easy answers and the promises that Donald Trump made in, 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 in 2016, that he was going to bring the steel mills back, that he was going to reinvigorate these places, haven't necessarily come true. And that's been exposed by the, the, the pandemic. So, so, Sean, let's zoom out here just a little bit, because the real significance here is, is Pennsylvania, right? And so how does Ambridge and Beaver County, which Ambridge sits in, play into the larger role that the state might play in the election? Sure. So Beaver County is hugely important. Uh, Ambridge was a blue dot in a red county in 2016. Uh, In 2016, Trump wins Beaver County by about 15,000 votes. That's about a third of his margin in Pennsylvania overall, which he won by just under 45,000 votes. Um, and this time around, he really needs to hold that margin in Beaver County, even build on it, uh, to, to hold Pennsylvania again. And at the same time, it's a place that is in Ambridge. Is, this is true of Ambridge, which voted for Hillary Clinton, as it is in, in broader Beaver County, that's still incredibly socially conservative, uh, that has an older population, largely white population, um, and they see stuff happening in America that Donald Trump is pointing out to them and is, is now running on this whole law and order message, this whole pointing to the, the, um, the protests, the violent protests in Portland and, and uh, some of the violent protests that we've seen in Kenosha, Wisconsin uh, in the past week or so. And, um, and he's saying, you know, be warned, America. And, and that message resonates. And that's reporter Sean Don and magazine editor Joel Weber. I love Sean's work because it really takes complicated issues and distills them down to the people underneath them. The story of that town in Pennsylvania tells us so much about the election and, more importantly, the electorate. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we keep the focus on the 2020 election and hear from the CEO of Vote America. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly. Today, bringing you a lot of highlights from our daily radio show and podcast. Carol Masser was off this week, so I'm joined by Alex Steele throughout the show. Our conversations catching up, especially on this special edition of the magazine. It's a voter's guide to the most volatile election in decades. We want to stick with that theme. So we caught up with the CEO of Vote America, Deborah Cleaver. She talked to us about how they're helping people vote by mail. Vote America runs very large-scale national voter registration and voter turnout campaigns. And what we do is identify and clear roadblocks to casting ballots. Uh, And this year, the big roadblock is COVID-19. There is a global pandemic that is going to make it harder for people to vote in person. So we are focused almost entirely on vote by mail, which is apparently the topic of the moment. Thank you, President Trump. So what is so? Okay, so if your job normally was to go around and and sign up voters and get them to the polling stations, what is your job going to be this time around? It's helping people navigate the vote by mail process, which isn't hard. It's just new for most people. Um, And, you know, most of us know how to vote in person. You register to vote and then you just go vote on Election Day. Um, But if you want to vote by mail, you register to vote. Then you request your mail in ballot. Then you receive your mail in ballot and then you return your mail in ballot by the Election Day. There's a few extra steps. And again, it's not that they're hard. It's just that there's more of them. But uh, now, as if that wasn't enough for people, there's also now, um, how do I put this? Mail delivery is slower. Yeah. Um, so, so we basically pivoted from being an organization that primarily focuses on helping people vote in person on Election Day to an organization that helps people uh, vote by mail. How does this vote go from here? We're 60 or so days out. What's the sort of rhythm? And I know it's a different sort of year because of the pandemic, but early voting, mail-in voting, what's the, how does it go? Um, These are great questions. So mail-in voting officially kicks off tomorrow. North Carolina is going to be sending the mail-in ballots out to people who signed up for them. So mail-in voting has started. Um, Early voting won't start for a few weeks. It generally starts about four weeks before the election um, and then runs through election day. And most states, but not all, have early voting. Um, And then, of course, there's election day voting. The thing that's going to be so interesting this year is that we're going to see record numbers of people vote by mail. And in about half the states, um, in half the states, your ballot needs to be received by Election Day, but the other states, it just needs to be postmarked by Election Day, right. which means millions of ballots are going to come in after Election Day. And for the first time in our nation's history, realistically, we're not going to know who won the presidency on Election Day. It's kind of um, like 2000, a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. God, I blocked 2000 out. Um, <laughs> it was a long been night. At this for a while. So for the second time in our nation's <laughs> history, we won't know. But in 2000, we didn't know because everything was, was contested. This right. year, we're not going to know because the ballots just won't be in yet. So, so can you just I, walk me through the logistics yeah. of that? So, um, okay, literally, like, all these ballots wind up 
in a big trunk where? And then is there like some person counting them? Like how does that actually happen? Oh, yeah. So you actually need to open the ballot and then count them. Um, and if something needs to be postmarked by election day, and we all know how slow mail delivery is this year, I mean, ballots are going to be received days after the election, and then you need to open them up and count them. And humans do this. Um, and I expect that we'll be counting ballots for three weeks or so after the election. So what we'll actually have this year, one way to think of it is we're going to have voting day which is like when people are voting and then election day when we know when the winner is a few weeks later. But what I think will happen is instead of everyone being calm and rational and not freaking out, I think we're going to see uh, a bunch of people try to say that the reason we don't know the result yet is because there is voter fraud. Right, right. So it's going to be pretty wild. But the unusual thing is this is how most other countries do it. Like in most other countries, you have voting day, and then three weeks later, when everything's been certified and every last vote's been counted, you announce the winner, and that's election day. Like, we are the only country that really does this, like, crazy process. Um, And, you know, you guys have seen the returns come in. Have you ever noticed that we predict the winner when, like, 5% of precincts are in? Right. That's so crazy. It's yeah. so crazy that we do that. So this year, we're not going to be able to say who the winner is until we've counted every ballot, which is actually exactly how elections should be run. But it's new. Right. And whenever you do something for the first time, there's going to be a little bit of like chaos and uncertainty. But unfortunately, I think there's going to be deliberate attempts to make that chaos and uncertainty So, Deborah, I do want to ask you before we let you go, you know, one thing we've talked a lot about on on this program and and I've done a little bit of reporting about um, because I also look at the world of sports and the business of sports is this movement by LeBron James and a, a, a number of athletes and celebrities. And we had the NBA sort of come out very much in favor of this, of, you know, opening arenas up for early voting and for Election Day as well. I've heard sort of varying experts or varying opinions from experts as to how much that could actually impact turnout. Do you have a take on that in terms of of what you've seen in those efforts to create these sort of super precincts and, and other elements around getting out the vote? It's definitely a net positive. Um, if nothing else, it's drawing a lot of attention to right. early voting and to voting in general, which is great. Um, as for whether or not it will have like a measurable impact, that's kind of hard to say. Uh, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to these like mega voting centers. The plus is easy to find. Yeah. You know, yeah. like we all know where the stadium is. Right. The minus is that people need to drive to get to those stadiums and not everyone drives. Uh, but plus, again, this year is it's kind of hard to have a socially distanced election and stadiums are huge. Right. So there's actually room for people to line up and stand six feet apart. I see nothing but positives coming out of this. I think increased awareness is always wonderful. I mean, we know our, our government doesn't spend money working to increase turnout. So it, it Um, It falls to the rest of us. And that's Deborah Cleaver, the CEO of Vote America. Obviously, voting is talked about all the time and in a different way here in 2020, given the pandemic and so much politicization of 
the simple act of voting. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we hear from the author of After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly. We're bringing you some of the highlights from our daily radio show and podcast. Carol Masser, she was off this week, so I'm joined throughout the show by Alex Steele. Well, Alex and I got a chance to talk with Juliet Shore, a well-known author and sociologist. She teaches at Boston College. She's got a new book out apropos for Labor Day. It's called After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. And she told us about a decade of research that went into this book. I was writing a book in 2008-9 about sort of how we could respond to what at that time, of course, was the financial collapse and economic problems and the climate crisis. I was really interested in ways that people could begin to be more self-sufficient, de-link from jobs they really didn't want to be in, corporate, you know, kind of rat race jobs. And uh, one of the things I started looking at as they were just being founded were new sharing economy initiatives, things like Airbnb, originally the, the, the ride share companies now now no longer really ride share but um so these things were all just getting started they were being founded just as i was writing that book as soon as i finished that book i started on a research project and i've spent the last 10 years studying the sort of early promise of the gig or what was called the sharing economy and then of course how things developed so in, in your research, was there one big takeaway that you learned from this? Well, I say there are two. I mean, the first one is that these were, this technology that these platforms use is really great, and it does hold wonderful promise. But the platforms came to be, they were founded by, and then investors came in, people who really weren't interested in having them achieve all the social benefits um, that, you know, they were promising in the early days. And they really just went for market domination, growth, and profitability. And, and they kind of commercialized what was originally supposed to be a very personal, person-to-person kind of economic structure. So that's one takeaway. It was sort of, you know, greed... Greed got the better of these things. Um, But there's one other really important finding in our book, uh, which is that people who were just using these platforms for extra income, what we call supplemental income, mostly had really good experiences on them. And whether we're talking Airbnb, ride hails, we looked a lot at TaskRabbit, which is a kind of errands Mm -hmm. and home-based work platform. People who were trying to earn a living on them were really having to struggle. And, you know, many of them were earning below the poverty line. We didn't have any of those what we call dependent earners who were actually making a good living. So one of the problems is that more and more people on these platforms are people who need to make a living on them. And that's especially true in ride ale and food delivery. So the that's another really important thing that I think has has gotten lost, which is that they're they're really not feasible as jobs, and yet, of course, many, you know, they they offer themselves as 
as being able to to provide like a real income to people, especially ride hail food delivery. Right. But it and doesn't the, work. And Juliet, I got to ask you, I mean, you've been doing this research, as you said, really looking into this for the better part of a decade. And here we get to 2020. And I feel like everything gets turned upside down, including the gig economy, the sharing economy, however you'd want to define it. Every aspect of every economy got turned upside down. Absolutely. I mean, ride-hailing collapsed. Suddenly there was insatiable demand for in-store shoppers and delivery. Um, The other thing that we're seeing in the interviews we're doing is that uh, these workers can't get work anymore because the companies have hired so many people. There was a story out on Bloomberg today about um, a group of uh, delivery workers on Amazon who were positioning phones in trees right next Amazing. to the stores as a way of being the first one because the the algorithm picks the closest phone. Yeah. So it's gotten really brutal out there. Our uh, people we're interviewing are telling us that you know other people are using bots to snag uh, ships, and so they can't get work anymore. So yes, it's really upended a lot of people's uh, lives. And that's Boston College sociology professor Juliet Shore, author of the new book, After the Gig. Pick that up. You will learn a ton about where we are in the economy. So much has changed, but so much changed in that specific category. We talk about the tech companies so much, but the workers, maybe we don't pay enough attention to their struggles and the implications, both economic and social. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, speaking of social justice, sports stars, they are fighting for it publicly. We take a look at how protests may impact the world of sports, including their valuations. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly. Carol Masser, she was taking a much-deserved vacation this week, so I was joined throughout the week by Alex Steele. We got a chance to speak with George Pine. He's an old pal of mine. He's now the CEO of Bruin Sports Capital. He was the president of IMG International, also had a top job at NASCAR, so he knows the world of sports inside and out. Check out what he had to say about the state of sports. Well, you know, I think it's positive. I think you have players and people that really want to see positive change, uh, better things for the country, and believe strongly in social justice. And I think people, uh, you know, stood up for what they believed in. So I think fundamentally, it's a really good thing. It's kind of refreshing. And, you know, you've seen in, in the case of these athletes, really taking a stand on something they believe is a real moral issue. Um, they don't have to. That's their, that's not their responsibility. But they, as, as citizens, really standing up for something they really believe in. So I, I think it's fundamentally a good thing. Um, why hasn't something like this happened before? Well, I think it's an evolution. I think it's an evolution. I think also to watching what's happened, you know, uh, on on TV through social media, it's just so disturbing that I think it's brought a real uh, more emphasis to an issue that we all know it's been there a long time, but it's just to watch it is visceral for so many people. So I think think it's a a, a good thing. And, of course, you've had, if you think back, I mean, I think these moments also make you think about people like Bill Russell or Mm -hmm. Muhammad Ali or Jesse Owens or Jackie uh, Robinson and just the things that they did uh, and the challenges they must have faced 
uh, just really makes you appreciate them, I think, a little bit more today as well. So I, I guess sports has always been a platform for ch- some change, but I think now you're seeing uh, it being used in a more universal way and I think a very constructive way. Well, and it's interesting, George, to think about how sports are being played right now. And I, I was speaking with somebody earlier in the sports world, and they were saying that the the power is in part owing to the concentration of athletes and the focus to some extent. I mean, this notion that, just taking the NBA for a second, that all of these players, all of these teams, you know, the majority, not every team and not every player, but the majority were in one place and able to get together in one room and, and make decisions. So the moment in, in some ways has met them and all of this is sort of coming together, this nexus of the, of the pandemic as well as facing down structural racism, some of it in, it in an almost perverse way has been made possible by the pandemic. Well, the fact that the the players were together, it probably did make it that much easier for them to act. I think the other kind of inspiring moment in all this is all the other sports that that joined in that weren't that weren't uh, in one location and and you know almost universally professional sports and college sports you know stood together and and made a statement. So I think you know it's inspiring. I think it's a good thing, and uh, you know hopefully you know. Better things will come. I mean, sports is not the panacea to solve all problems, but it is a platform, and uh, and people can make a, a positive uh, contribution to hopefully uh, moving things forward in a constructive fashion. Um, broadening it out a little bit, just to talk about playing sports, um, what kind of sports are we going to keep playing? Like, are we going to get used to? Oh, a b- bunch of these players got got tested, and therefore we're going to stop games for about a week, and then we'll pick it back up. Like, is that going to be the new normal for sports now, too? Well, I think so. I mean, as long as you're living in the pandemic, you know, anything's possible. I think when you look at it on balance, it's been amazingly done well. I mean, the NHL has had zero positive tests, hasn't canceled a contest, and the NBA hasn't canceled a contest and has had very few positive tests. Um, you know, NASCAR's gone off well. PJ Tour, you know, the National Women's Soccer League did really well and had a really good TV rating. You know, the only sport that's had a real, real, real challenge has been baseball, where they, they don't haven't played in the bubble. But even there, they've played the most games. They've had to cancel, you know, 35 or 40 games, but still, I think, have executed it safely and, and done really well. And, you know, the other other area that doesn't get a lot of coverage, you know, there's about 75 college football teams that have gone through a preseason and prior to that trained for eight or nine weeks and have done that, you know, pretty safely. And that's consistent with what we're seeing around the world. People are playing rugby, they're playing soccer, and it's being played uh, safely. And so, you know, so far so good. But in, the, in this world, in this day and age, you know, I, I suppose anything's possible. Right. Well, and economics have driven some of that, whether we like it or not, George. And this is something you and I caught up on earlier this summer, right as we were getting into it. And and you were giving me some statistics then about the economic impact, taking college football specifically, that those teams and those programs have on their local market. So part of this is an economic recovery story as much as people wanting sports to come back because they like them. Yeah, well, it's a, it, I think it's going to be devastating uh, what happens here. I mean, I, you take Tuscaloosa, Alabama, whether Alabama plays or not this year, 
the economic impact for one game is about twenty million dollars a game. Six Incredible. games is one hundred twenty million. And wow! But you put that out to Madison, Wisconsin, Columbus, Ohio, Knoxville, Tennessee, Athens, Georgia, and you know communities are really depending on these games to take place. They're not going to if they take place. There's not going to be anywhere near the fans. And not to mention, you know, the game day revenue, uh, you know, includes people that sell tickets, security, people that provide concessions, service industries. All those industries are getting people losing jobs. They're being furloughed. Uh, it, you know, it's really going to be very quite challenging, and, and, and it's going to be challenging not just this year, right? In 2020, I mean, uh, best I can tell, I think about it every day. I think the first half of next year for li- anything live events is going to be very difficult. And I think all of a sudden when you say, let's go back to live events, I don't think everyone's running back. So 2021 is going to be very challenged, and probably 2022, and you hope that 2023 you come out of it. Also, at a time when your revenues are going down, remember, sweet sales, sponsorship, hospitality, ticketing, consumer products, when those are all going down, your costs to run these events are going to go up because you have to create a safer environment. So. George, you know, one of the interesting things since you and I last talked is sports are back and they're being played in a very different way, as we were discussing at the top of the conversation. But people are watching it. I think many people agree, especially when it comes to the NBA. It's a pretty good product. What have we learned about consumption and media and how does that become investable for someone like you? Well, I think the con- what you're learning is that, you know, boy, it's a strong television product. I think, you know, going into the pandemic, sports was 88 or 89 of the top 100 programs on television. And, you know, it, that hasn't changed here. And, and, and on top of it, I mean, you have sports on top of sports on top of sports, and they're all, their ratings are up. So they're getting strong ratings. So I think, you know, long term, it's a great sector. And for us, the things that we see that, you know, we have a number, we operate in, uh, 30 countries. And, you know, what we're seeing is that streaming, data, uh, design, things around digital are really accelerating and, and doing well. So, you know, and that's not surprising. And, I, you know, again, I think even the live event space, while I mentioned it's going to be very difficult, I think there'll be reinvention opportunities. You know, one interesting thing, I think, is what Ted Leonsis is doing in D.C. I think, mm-hmm. you know, gambling and arenas are going to be places where you're going to go with your friends to place bets and probably gamble on games, not just one game, but a number of games. I mean, say Yankee Stadium, you'll go take your buddies and go to watch a game. I'm going to place bets maybe when the game's not playing and maybe even when there's not a baseball season. So mm-hmm. I think... I think you're going to see uh, growth in all, all of those areas in, in the future. But the next couple of years are going to be a little choppy in terms of just financially. There's going to be a lot of pressure on, on teams and leagues and federations and, and the companies around them. So there's sort of two parts to that. And one is like the ancillary businesses that exist now that are going to be struggling versus the new ancillary businesses that are up and coming. Um, talk to me about the former and what kind of opportunities you see there. Well, you know, for for us, we, we've uh, we've invested in data. So we're looking at data analytics. I think the way sponsorships going to change, um, streaming and technology are areas. And, and one of the companies we have a, a design company. Where I was like, why is design doing so well? But in a digital world, design is more important. So I think all things digital, all things gaming. I think those are really going to be strong, irrespective of of the pandemic, and are really unaffected by the pandemic. And then, like you said, Alex there'll be new companies coming along that will be able to take advantage of the live events or 
established companies that are as part of their return are going to have to adjust uh, to new opportunities in the world. And that's George Pine, the CEO of Bruin Sports Capital. Some really interesting insights about sports, professional, college, and otherwise. Big questions, not only socially, but economically about the world of sports. A reminder of just how intrinsic it is to so many regional and local and really the national economy. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And in addition to our daily podcast, get that twice a day. Download our Business Week Extra podcast this week as well. It's right there in the feed. It features our full conversation with the CEO of Land's End, Jerome Griffith. You'll learn a lot about him and the business of clothes and fashion. We'll be back next week right here at the same time. This is Bloomberg.